You're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. According to a recent survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, a nonpartisan fact tank that informs the public about the issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world, currently about 3 in 10 U.S. adults, or 29%, are religious nuns. That's spelled N-O-N-E-S, or people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. This is only one of the challenges facing religious leaders today. COVID, social media, and politics are also in the mix. To discuss these and other issues, I reached out by telephone to three faith leaders in the village of Ridgewood, New Jersey, a suburban bedroom community of New York City located approximately 20 miles northwest of Midtown Manhattan. I opened my interview with the results of the recent survey conducted by the Pew Research Center, as well as a series published by The Record on religion in suburban houses of worship in northern New Jersey, which have lost between 40 to 50 percent of their congregations, and asked my guests if they had noticed a drop in their membership as well. The Reverend Dr. Kenneth Gill, the senior minister of Emanuel Baptist Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, felt that the decline probably started in the 60s and early 70s. I think probably all of the mainline Christian churches in Ridgewood, in Bergen County, New Jersey, well, in fact, in the Northeast, have experienced significant declines in membership, probably beginning in the 60s, in the early 70s. So we really, in this part of the country, in terms of mainline denominational Christianity are kind of the uh, avant-garde of the uh, exodus from church. Reverend Dr. Sarah Lenzi, who currently serves as minister of the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood, New Jersey, felt that her church has fared better than most. I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister. We actually, in the context of American religious institutions' loss of members, we have fared better than most. But even we, at this point, are beginning to see some decline in membership, or perhaps more precisely said, a change in how people participate. I have been at the congregation I'm with for the past five years, and over that time, we've lost, our membership has declined, I want to say it that way, maybe just under 10% or so. Now, a lot of that, though, has been folks moving, especially in the wake of COVID, to be closer to family. Some of that has also been death. Very little of that has been folks deciding to no longer participate in community. What's happening, I think, is that younger people coming up are less inclined to join. Those nuns that you speak of, they're younger folks less inclined to join a congregation. So yes, we have noticed it, but it has been a much slower trend in our denomination than in others. Rabbi David Fine, currently serving as rabbi of Temple Israel in Ridgewood, New Jersey, felt that suburban congregations no longer had the growth that they had 20 years ago. In the 80s and 90s, there was a increase in membership that was attributed to the demographics of people moving into the suburbs and also, I think, importance of affiliation. So we've had a, a drop. The demographic patterns have changed, and at the same time, there has been a drop in affiliation rates overall. So we are able to attract new members to make up for the attrition that we have of people moving away or dying, as happens. We no longer have the, the growth 
that was a given in many suburban congregations about 20 years ago. For folks who consider themselves spiritual but not religious or in that none category, there is a place for those folks theologically in Unitarian Universalism. So they can participate in the building of community, in the social justice work, in offering support and feeling supported by others, in multi-generational community, which is something that congregations offer across religious lines that is, that is lacking in most of American life. They can have all of that without feeling like theological hypocrites. So they can participate in all of that without having to sacrifice personally held beliefs or to do lip service to some dogma or creed that they don't believe in. For Rabbi Fine, people join synagogues to identify with their Jewish identity. People join synagogues in order to, part of it is to affirm the Jewish identity, and part of it is also for the life cycles of the bar and bat mitzvah. You have to kind of be affiliated with a Jewish community to have those points of entry than is necessary in Christian, mainline Christian congregations. So in a sense, synagogues, I believe, have the advantage of having the added motivation of the religious ethnic identity that drives affiliation. That being said, as I said, the affiliation rates have dropped. We don't see growth happening in the way that we did in the 90s. And in the Jewish world, they're worse in the Northeast, where we have concentrated Jewish populations. For example, in the South, where there's fewer Jews, and to be Jewish, it's more important to belong to a congregation in order to have a handle on one's Jewish identity. Whereas in northern New Jersey, you don't need to belong to a synagogue to feel Jewish. You see Hanukkah menorahs on Hanukkah. You see Jewish displays in the supermarket aisles around the times of the Jewish holidays. But you still do need to be connected with a synagogue or some other community to celebrate a bar bat mitzvah with your child and to provide a Jewish education that we do in our supplementary schools. Reverend Gill's original commission was to help revitalize the church. The reason I was called to this particular parish is that they were interested in renewal and kind of revitalizing the church. One time this church building, this historic church building, was full with young families, children, and young adults, and like many other uh, comparable congregations and facilities in Ridgewood, they built additional educational space, a big wing onto the church, and uh, that has steadily declined to the point where when I came five years ago, it dwindled down to a fairly uh, small number of folks actually participating in the service. So my commission was to help revitalize the church. And I think we've had some success in six years, not only in uh, worship attendance, but outreach programs and somehow creating a, a public presence in Ridgewood and becoming a part of a conversation about issues that we think are important related to uh, social justice and other support groups and things. When COVID hit a few years ago, that really kind of put the brakes on some of our momentum and some of our folks dropped out. We did pick up more of a virtual audience. We're still dealing with that. Social media has taken a role in, among other things, religion. A July 2021 report by Kate Dealer, published in the New York Times, titled Facebook's Next Target, The Religious Experience, states that the company, referring to Facebook, is intensifying formal partnerships with faith groups across the United States and shaping the future of religious experience. 
Facebook is developing new products, including audio and prayer sharing, aimed at faith groups. I asked my guests if virtual religious life is replacing in-person community. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I read that article some time ago. To me, quite honestly, to me, it's a little frightening that Facebook would determine the future of religious life in America, or anywhere for that matter. First of all, that assertion, I don't know ultimately how that's going to play out in terms of the influence that social media has on really restructuring religious life. The reality is it's kind of baked in now to the fabric of congregational life, the use of social media and technology. We have to embrace it. And here at Emmanuel, we have. Actually, we started the process five or six years ago. We were a little bit ahead of the curve when COVID hit. I think it does open up some doors of opportunity. I don't think it will ever replace face-to-face community. The relational aspect of the faith experience can't be totally captured on a screen with little boxes. I just don't think that's going to happen. And I don't quite honestly think that's that's what the world ultimately is going to need. In fact, I'm seeing that now. People need to get beyond Zoom. There is kind of a yearning to reconnect with people as much as possible face-to-face. Even pre-pandemic, ministers, certainly in my circle, would discuss what is the value of technology as a tool to connect. Folks who struggle with social anxiety or who are homebound, technology allows them to participate in community in ways they never could before. Any of us who've gone back to in-person services after being virtual for over a year have been having this feeling of like, oh yes, this is different. Something different happens when you are actually in person with one another. There is a different feeling. I do sort of stand by the idea that nothing can quite replace in-person community. It's not surprising to me, though, that Facebook and any other of a variety of social media platforms or technology companies would be jumping on the, the potentially lucrative bandwagon of moving some of religious experience into the virtual realm. It offers them an opportunity to sort of capitalize on another aspect of human experience, which is what all of these companies do so well. What's interesting to me is to think about part of my own academic work was looking at the ways that sort of art or architecture, the spaces and the things that we look at, how those actually impact our beliefs, how our beliefs shape what we create in the world around us, but then what we create also in turn comes around again to shape so that it's sort of a cyclical thing. There's a sort of circular impact. And it's interesting then to consider, so we've moved online out of necessity in some ways and and out of maybe perhaps better reasons in other ways. And, okay, great, we've done that move. Now Facebook and others are going to capitalize on that. But then we can't deny that their capitalizing on that is going to in turn impact and affect how we do religious life. And I think that remains to be seen, what the impact of that, you know, you could call it interference, you could call it, I don't know what exactly, right? We're going to have to sort of see what it looks like, how that comes around again to try to quietly and without our even realizing it shape religious life in turn. I would not say it's replacing um, in during the, pandemic and certainly in the spring and summer of 2020 we had to move things online and there are some of that happening now because of the concerns with the Omicron variant so we did have to learn how to use online as a substitute but I don't see it as a replacement I think that 
one of the things that religious communities offer to the wider society is an opportunity to engage with other people and to form community. And that's an essential role that religion has always offered from the beginning. The very terms church and synagogue mean places for people to gather. I don't see that as changing, but I think that we found the tools of the virtual world to be we ignore them at our peril. We were already using Facebook before the pandemic hit as an essential tool for outreach and communications. And certainly in terms of using Zoom and live stream and other media to be able to reach people in their homes provides not only in a pandemic, but going forward as a way to connect to people who cannot be present in person. So we've always had the challenge of, of homebound members of the congregation and also people that are traveling to be able to connect through, go on the website and follow the service. There were a few synagogues that were doing that, but now it's it's open pretty much across the board, at least in the non-Orthodox world, for Sabbath services. And that's an incredible asset that we can offer to our members in order to keep them connected. According to another report, also published by The Record, Faith leaders say the digital technology that kept worshipers connected during the health crisis has come with a downside. It's allowed people to grow complacent about spending Sunday mornings in their living rooms, like spiritual couch potatoes. The upshot of Zoom services may mean more people praying overall, but fewer making intimate connections to their church. It's had financial consequences as well, with weekly collections suffering. I asked Reverend Gill if the economy had affected his congregation as well. It, not so much. We're an older congregation. It's a pretty stable income base. And we also, at Emmanuel, happen to have a, a high school that has been leasing a good chunk of the building for a lot of years. And that's a consistent income. So in that sense, we're, we're kind of fortunate. But we're a dying breed here. I mean, a congregation of our size that, say, was a newer congregation could never afford to have the kind of uh, endowment or kind of property and resources and infrastructure that this church has accumulated over 150 years. The world is changing in terms of the church very quickly. Jewish houses of worship do not depend on weekly donations, which, according to Rabbi Fine, puts a greater burden on traditional synagogues. The perception that through history that Jewish culture has been adept at finance is belied by the tradition of not using money on the Sabbath. That was clearly not a fiscally prudent tradition, uh, and it puts a greater burden on traditional synagogues to find other times to collect funds than when people are gathered for services. We do find ways around it. The pandemic certainly hurt in that we weren't able to hold the type of in-person fundraisers that most synagogues do on an annual basis that brings in funds in addition to, you know, supplement what we gain from general donations and membership dues. For us, though, I think the, the virtual tools were a lifeline in maintaining the membership and loyalty of our membership. If you just close down for a year, then it's harder to justify what we're paying dues for. But given that we were still 
able to offer services. We offered adult education offerings. We offered our, our supplementary schools, and all of this was done, and we shifted to online means of doing that. I have a weekly coffee hour online for people to talk with me and meet with me at virtual office hours. That actually helped in justifying why one should continue to support the institution because the institution is still offering a product. Yes, it is harder, again, because we don't have the in-person gatherings. In terms of my congregation, though, my core group of worshipers were anxious to come back in person, and we did resume our in-person services as soon as we could. We do socially distance, and we wear masks. And once, especially once the vaccines were generally available and people were no longer a uh, shelter-in-place mentality, we did have people coming back to services. That being said, it's still a tremendous challenge when we have the larger gatherings for family celebrations, for for holidays, and that's taken a lot of creative work in figuring how to do it while keeping our, our numbers more manageable so people could feel comfortable. That's a real danger, and we've seen it. Yeah, the weekly plate, as we call it, the weekly offering, has been down during the pandemic in spite of many platforms for giving, including texting and other things. But you're right that if folks are laying in their bed in their jammies, they're maybe not going to reach for the phone and do the thing. You mentioned both the sort of the actual financial cost and the potential sort of spiritual cost. And it's it's interesting to sort of have to think about those connected to each other, and yet they've always always been somewhat connected because once you institutionalize, there is a cost of things, a financial cost of things. It's hard. You're asking really interesting and great questions in a moment when there aren't actually, I think, a lot of great answers because we're still in the midst of whatever these changes are. The notion of a spiritual couch potato is a fascinating one because that gets at the heart of what does it even mean to participate in a community? What does it even mean to give and to be? One of the things we've seen, which you didn't mention, is also that volunteerism is down. And that is potentially partially because folks are so overwhelmed and in a place of trauma that what they need is to be spiritually fed, to be cared for. And so bringing themselves outside of themselves to do the work of institutions, to do the organizational work of congregational life is hard. But that's where we come around again to this question of like, what is congregational life? And congregational life at its best is the sort of mutual creation of community, the mutual care of individuals, and the deepening of one's own spiritual life. And I think that there are moments in time for an individual and for humanity at large where pieces of that are easier and pieces of that are harder. But I think that those things remain the heart. And I guess I have faith that eventually folks will find themselves back in a place where they remember and or rediscover the value of that mutual care and that creating together of community. In an interview with Michael Karras, a reporter for NorthJersey.com, the Reverend Preston Thompson of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Englewood, New Jersey, discussed trying to bring young people back to his church. And he stated, quote, Many of our churches are basically supported by an older generation. And if you don't bring young people in and train them to be the leaders of the church, then your churches begin to die off. Once that older generation makes their transition, there's no one to come behind, 
And so our young people are the legacy that we, the older generation, leave, and we have to make sure that we secure that legacy. I asked Rabbi Fine if that was true for his congregation, and if so, how his congregation was attempting to attract young people. It's a concern across the board with synagogues, especially with conservative synagogues. The newest Pew study that was released in May, I think, but it was based on work that was done just before the outbreak of the pandemic, found that the conservative Jewish denomination was the oldest and the most quickly aging of the different denominations. I think the average conservative Jew in America is 61 or 62 years old, statistically. When we talk about what we need for the future of the synagogue, it's always the younger families that are the most existentially important for the future of the Jewish community. For Reverend Lindsay, some of her most dedicated volunteers are in their 20s, but she has noticed fewer walk-ins of young people. Some of our most dedicated volunteers currently are folks with young children, a couple of folks in their 20s who found us and found a set of work in our congregation that is really fulfilling them and moving them. But overall, I think that we have noticed fewer random walk-ins of young folks and folks with young children. If someone arrives, it's because they've really recognized something missing. That The way that in my parents' generation, everybody would have just found a church and gone. It was a thing you did. These days, there's not as much of an expectation. And I will say, you know, I'm 40, I have young kids. It's, there's not as much of an expectation among my peers that you belong to religious community. And so folks aren't just like, oh, I've had kids, now I have to go find one. It has to come from a much deeper place. If it's okay, I want to touch on something you mentioned, which is this question of the transition of leadership and how you sustain a community over time. I think it's important to remember that, of course, congregations are subject to the same cultural trends and vicissitudes of the broader American life. All that stuff we see playing out on social media of like boomers and this and that and Gen X and millennials, like that stuff infiltrates congregational life too. So the idea of older generations who really want to build and create something that lasts and leave that legacy to younger generations, but who are struggling to understand the ways of the new generations or who want to hand it off but are not exactly sure that they really want to hand it off. And at the same time, younger generations who struggle to see the value in the old ways or who are not honoring the work that's come before in a way that feels confidence-giving to the folks who built the thing. I just think it's important to remember that congregational life, religious life, short of a monastery, is not independent of the world. It is part of the life that we all lead. We see it in our workplaces. We see it everywhere. So all that same generational struggle, all that same leadership development or lack thereof, that question of what is one generation leaving to another, all of that is present in congregational life. Reverend Gill thinks that the onus is on the church to find ways to connect with young people that are meaningful. We've had some success, although limited, but when I hear that, I ask, why do we want young people? On what terms are we trying to bring younger people into the church? Quite often, I think churches, more traditional institutional religion, tries to bring younger people in on their terms. Come and join our church and then help us run the business or join a committee. That doesn't necessarily work for younger people. I'm not pessimistic at all about people staying home and participating online in that sense. In 1960 or 1970, the typical 
uh, mom and dad with 2.5 children would get their family all dressed up on Sunday morning and come to the church together and spend three hours <laughs> before they went home. That's not going to happen today. And young people, I think the church, the onus is on the church to find ways to connect with them that are meaningful. For instance, what we've done the last three or four years have started a uh, support group for people that are ending uh, committed relationships. So we, we've called it uncoupling. We used to call it divorce recovery, but many times people in, <laughs> in relationships aren't married anymore, even long-term committed relationships. We've drawn from about a 30-mile radius, and we've had hundreds of people come over the last three or four years to participate in that kind of support group. I don't call it a support group. It's really an educational group. So my approach has been find the unmet need and try to fill it, try to meet it in some meaningful way, and really approach people on their terms and what they need in their lives. It doesn't matter so much whether they call themselves believers or nuns or whatever adjective you want to use. It's interesting when someone tells me, I don't really believe in God, my response is quite often, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. When they do that, quite often I'll, I'll say to them, you know, I don't believe in that God either. I think people are interested in a conversation about the spiritual matters, but they don't see the traditional institutional church as really having any relevance. To where they're at. We hear the term spiritual, but not religious. I think there are scads of people out there that are really hungry for what has been called the more. That's how I try to engage people, and we do here at Emanuel. Avram Adler, in an opinion piece for the USA Today Network, stated, quote, while faith-based communities have led the charge in supporting individuals with disabilities, creating inclusive programs, and overall destigmatizing disabilities within their communities, there is a growing need for more programming and education on how we can support those with disabilities and their families. For Reverend Lindsay, this means addressing a number of different disabilities. There's lots of different ways, depending on what kind of human differences we're talking about. There's lots of different ways to accommodate. So for example, we have a set of our hymnals in Braille so that if we have someone who's blind and is a Braille reader, they can participate in the music in that way. We also, in the world of religious education, are sort of increasingly sensitive to and aware of issues around integrating children who are not neurotypical, neurodivergent folks and making sure that the experience is accessible for children with all various needs. And that is, of course, it's one of the challenges of congregational life, too, is this question of what does it look like to be welcoming? How do we ensure that we are welcoming? And how do we respond, perhaps most importantly, how do we respond when we're made aware that we haven't been welcoming? If someone comes to us and says, I came or I hopped online Zoom and I could not participate because of X, Y, and Z, or I found the language that you were using kept me out of the service, or whatever it is, how do we then respond? I think that's probably the biggest measure of a community, is how they then respond to being made aware that there's something about the experience that is a barrier for others. Rabbi Fine wants his congregation to be open to everyone and to do everything that they can to include as many people as possible. There's always more that can be done. Um, and I think we start with the premise that 
as a governing principle that we want to be open to everyone and have no barriers for participation. When Temple Israel did its expansion, building expansion, 21 years ago, they set up the Torah reading table where the participation is with a ramp and the synagogue building is handicapped accessible so you can get anywhere by an elevator or a ramp. And that was a requirement in the building for the congregation, if not for the government, the requirements there. We were talking before about the use of Zoom and virtual technology. That's also been critically important for our ability to reach uh, the disabled and the homebound to be able to engage them and bring us to them in a way that we have not been able to do before. So in that sense, our work is critical. We've always kept a wheelchair and the walkers in the synagogue and ready to assist people if they need assistance so that we can do everything that we can to include as many people as possible. Reverend Gill stressed the importance of addressing mental health. I think the whole issue of mental health might be kind of the last frontier for congregations who have historically done a really poor job of even recognizing the need. Here at Emmanuel, you know, we're an accessible church. We're conscious of that, but we really haven't done nearly as much as we could to address those needs. I think it could be a huge opportunity and responsibility for congregations going forward. There are more than 15 houses of worship in the village of Ridgewood, New Jersey, and my report covered only three of them. For these three congregations, the past year has created changes in many forms, and they are certain to keep evolving. You've been listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Our theme music was played by Ululation. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.